The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. And we've got uh, the title of the message is Maranatha. Everybody say Maranatha. That's the name of our church. And if you're new to the church, I just met a family here for the first time. What's Maranatha? Maranatha is actually in the Bible. It's in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. He said, Maranatha. And what it means is, O Lord, come. It's either a declaration, the Lord is coming, Maranatha, or it's a prayer, O Lord, come. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, after Jesus had risen from the dead, and then he appeared to the disciples for 40 days, alive, risen in his body, up to 500 people at one time saw Jesus. How many would love to have been at that potluck or whatever, you know, with 500 people? There's Jesus. Then he goes to, after 40 days, to the Mount of Olives, and he, he lifts off and he goes up and disappears into the clouds. And they're standing there going like this. Men in white, who are angels, say, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing here up into heaven? This same Jesus shall so come again in like manner as you've seen him go, personally and visibly. So the church was like, he's coming back. So that's been the hope for 2,000 years. That's why we are called Maranatha, because I believe we are living in the days where we're going to see him, and that's going to happen. So turn to your neighbor and say, Maranatha, all right? All right, Maranatha. Okay, so you can start off here, your first little life application like a thief in the night, Matthew 24. I'm going to go back to verse 36 and read through verse 44. Jesus says, but of that day and hour, so he's talking about coming again, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And as I mentioned last week, when Jesus talks, so if we don't know the day and the hour, why is he telling us all these signs? Because the point is, you can know the times, and you can know the seasons. You just can't know the day or the hour. Does that make sense? So then he says in verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Translation, one application is, what does it mean they'll be like the days of Noah? Nobody knew what was coming. Nobody saw it. Nobody expected it until it was too late. So that's why, now, so why is Jesus telling us this? Because he doesn't want that to happen to you and to me and those who will listen to him and those who believe in him, you can see it coming before it comes. And they did not know, verse 39, did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So it'll be life as usual. The people out in the world today, well, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to have fun with our family. Uh, you know, so they, they just are clueless. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch. Therefore, he's a lot, he says, watch, pay attention, be looking, be aware, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, 
You also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus used Noah to warn us that we cannot know the day. Then he used the picture of a thief to tell us we don't know the hour that he will come. But the the Bible's given us an outline of the end times, and you can know those times and seasons. And one of the biggest pieces to the end time puzzle is, first of all, there there will be a regathered Israel. So that's our generation. There wasn't an Israel for 2,000 years. Jesus wasn't going to come back while there was no Israel. First, you had to have an Israel, because Jesus is coming back to Israel, he's coming back to Jerusalem. So now that that came in, then what would follow the rebirth of Israel is history would repeat itself. There'd be a lot of trouble in that part of the world, in that neighborhood, a rough neighborhood. They would be surrounded on all sides by many enemies. The world would be troubled by this, and therefore there would be a tremendous need for a peace deal in the Middle East. And that's what the Bible says. And it says in the beginning of that peace deal that will come to a regathered Israel, in the beginning, it will seem to be working. It will lead to, in fact, people will say, wow, finally, peace and safety. And then Jesus says, when they begin resting and nestling into, it's finally going to work out and it's going to happen and it's peaceful and it's safe, then sudden destruction. And then that leads into a time called the Great Tribulation, three and a half years. That's what the whole book of Revelation is basically about. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days of the worst days in human history. So that's what, uh, you know, this is what the Bible is talking about. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Let's read this out loud. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. What I want to say here, when Peter used this language, the Holy Spirit was anointing him. And as he's writing, he's, he's talking about when war finally breaks out. There are several wars that will, and then leading to the ultimate war called the Battle of Armageddon. He uses very precise Greek language when he says the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Do you know that that is a scientific description of what happens in a nuclear bomb? It literally melts all of the elements. So we're talking about some very serious things. But remember, and here is... Very, very good news. In the midst of all that, as, as the church is going, wow, thank you for the inside information, but my heart is palpitating. And the Lord says, remember this. He did say, if those days, those last, that last crazy time, where it goes from peace and safety to war, if those days were not shortened, Jesus said, no flesh would survive. Now, I've already mentioned this before. We now, you know how many nuclear weapons we have? We have enough nuclear weapons that we could kill all 7 billion people over 20 times. That's, we literally, if, if everybody just started pushing buttons and letting it go, that, and Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. But, he said, here's the good news, for the elect's sake, 
God says, I'm not going to let man annihilate himself. I'm going to shorten those days because of my special children and my elect. Can I hear an amen on that? Hallelujah. So, um, and I have some more really good news. You want some more good news? (laughs) Really good news. When God allows this to happen and and when the the war comes and then the, the kingdom comes, and judgment comes. And listen, there's no other word to describe it. This is literally out of the Bible. I can't change it. When Jesus comes, he's not only coming for judgment and justice, but wrath. Wrath will be poured out on the devil. Wrath will be poured out on this character called the Antichrist. Wrath will be poured out on all of the evil and violence and murder and wickedness that is in this world. Wrath. But here's the good news. The Lord promised that we who are his children, his sons and daughters, we are not appointed to wrath. Hallelujah. Come on, that's a little weak. Guys, we're not, it's not for us. It's not for us. Now, where does it say that in the Bible? Here we go. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Let's read it. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, 1 Thessalonians, same book, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Let's read this. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Hallelujah. Amen. Good news. Okay, but now I, I want to take a moment. I need to share something with you. And, and I, it's, I can only begin to unravel and open this. Um, but for those who have been watching, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the, the media have been focused on a political story so much that that's pretty much all they are talking about. And I want to say that there was something else that has nothing to do with that political discussion that happened this last week that I believe may be the most important thing that has happened in our lifetime. And do you know what that was? A peace deal. A peace deal. And with this peace deal, let me, I'm going to just put it here, the current peace deal. What do you think about it, Pastor Ray? Here's what I think about it. The countdown has begun. We don't know the day and we don't know the hour, but I believe the countdown has begun. Now, let me, let me say this, and I want to be careful. Lord, help me. Because we have a, would, would you all agree with me, we have a very uh, unique president at this uh, time in our history. Can we go there? He's been called a disruptor. How many would kind of generally agree? I don't know, wherever you come from, he's a disruptor. In fact, so much so that both sides, politically, are saying American politics and American democracy from this time forward will never, ever be the same. The Republican Party will never be the same. The Democratic Party will never be the same. As we, we have, there has been a shift that has happened 
We, we, we are still trying to figure it out, analyze it. It's a little difficult because we're still in the middle of it and we haven't landed yet, but it's happening. And I want to ask, I want to add this as far as presidents and leaders go, because we need to pray for our president, Trump. We need to pray for God's wisdom. We need to pray for him and we pray for his family and pray for all those who are in authority. And quite honestly, my belief, it's not my belief, but what the Bible says, not only the President Trump, but the one before him, President Obama, and then going back before that, President George Bush, and going back before that, and President Bill Clinton, all, every single one of them did not become president uh, except by the, the sovereignty of God. And God used every single one of them in their time for certain things that he wanted to do and accomplish. Nothing has changed. We have to pray for them. We're to pray for kings and for all those in authority. But this one, we're in a very, very unusual time. And America is never going to be the same again. And what I want to add to that is that now our president has gone to the Middle East. He himself has called it the deal of the century. And he has landed this deal. Now, it's going to take four years for it to completely roll out. He says this, we need confidence building. So it's only the beginning. And they're looking at four years. But here's what I want to tell you. Even as God has used our current president, has disrupted and, and its politics in our country are never going to be the same. Now, President Trump has gone to the Middle East and submitted a peace plan. And I'm telling you, now that we have landed, now that that peace plan is out, it just came out a few days ago, Hear my voice, the Middle East is never going to be the same. With what is happening and what has been brought there and what has been brought out, we are at a threshing floor moment in history. Hear what I'm saying to you, a threshing floor moment. What I mean by that is, originally the temple was on top of a mountain that was a threshing floor. That's where, the, that's where the temple was put. David went to a mountaintop called Mount Zion, and he bought the threshing floor of Aruna. And there he put the temple. A threshing floor is where wind comes and separates the wheat from the chaff. We're living in a historic time where God is going to separate Literally, the sheep nations from the goat nations, the righteous from the wicked, those who are saints and those who are in rebellion against God, a time of separation. And in order to bring the threshing floor, you need wind, a rushing mighty wind on the top of that mountain that separates the wheat from the chaff. And that wind is a picture of the Holy Spirit who is like a rushing mighty wind. The wind of the Holy Spirit's blowing through the United States of America, and he's separating wheat from chaff. He is blowing through the Middle East, country after country. He is separating the wheat from the chaff. If I could use a football analogy, I'm hoping today is a good game. You know what a good game is to me? That you, that you don't know who's going to win right up until the very end. It goes into the last two minutes of the game. You ever seen one of those? Oh, this team, oh, the first quarter, it's, gonna, it's over. 
Then all of a sudden they start coming back the second quarter and then it's gonna be even at halftime. And then another one goes this way and then another one goes that way. And then it comes down to, wow, you know, they've, they've got to score a touchdown. They, they could win by one point, but they only have two minutes and they're on the five yard line. And then they throw a 25 yard and then they throw a 35 yard. And then all of a sudden they get scared. And there's, you know, five seconds left on the clock. They've got one more play. And you're like, oh my gosh, the whole game came down to one play the last two minutes. I suggest to you that's where we are in world history. It's the last two minutes. Now, in this peace plan, I, wanna, I just want to state as I see it exactly what this peace plan does. The Holy Land ultimately is divided. Jerusalem is divided in this peace plan. And next, I believe, will come the temple. I don't know if it'll start with we want to be able to pray on the Temple Mount, the Jewish people, or build an altar on the Temple Mount, or literally all the way to the temple. But I am telling you, it's coming. I cannot underscore this enough. This peace plan divides the Holy Land. It divides Jerusalem. And some will say, well, all they're doing is recognizing the facts on the ground. Kind of, well, this is where the Jewish people are right now, and this is where the Palestinians are. Let's draw basically some lines and a little swapping in the middle there. And the settlements, true. But to make a deal is to confirm the facts on the ground. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that this, which they are going to confirm the dividing of the land is not what God ultimately wants. It is called the Holy Land. It's not even God's, you know, it's not even Israel's land, it's the Holy Land that belongs to God. I wanna show you the map. I don't know if you've seen the map, but the, well, actually it's not a map, it's two maps. You see those two maps? So I'm gonna go over here on the left side. This map, if you go all the way up to the top left, there's Vision for Peace, conceptual map. That is a future state of Palestine. And then you come over here to the right, and that says a vision for peace, a conceptual map, the state of Israel. Don't they kind of look the same? Why do they have to have two? Because one says this is the map of Palestine, and they don't want the word Israel on it, and vice versa. So there's two maps. So here's what I want to say. There's two maps. There are two countries. There are two borders. There are two colors on the map. And ultimately, they say there are two capitals. Now, they've, you know, smartly, they put in there, look, <coughs> in order to do this, we need the Palestinians to, to take all of the terrorists and all, they need to lay down all of their arms and quit them and give them up permanently. Secondly, we need them to stop paying for the families of those who become terrorists and blow up a bunch of people and then they pay their family. You got to stop that. And thirdly, Palestinian leadership needs to declare with their mouth that we acknowledge and recognize the state of Israel as a Jewish state for the Jewish people. Then, if you do that, we'll give you all of this and billions of dollars, and you have your own land and your own territory, and we will give you East Jerusalem for the Palestinians to put their own capital, and we as America will even bring our embassy. So we'd have one embassy in the Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem and another embassy, which we already have, in Jerusalem for the unified Jerusalem. So they say, so it's still, you know, we're not dividing it, but we're just kind of sharing it. But I want you to know that literally 
It's two maps, two countries, two borders, two colors, and ultimately, if it all works out, two capitals. So here's what I want to say, uh, and I'll be brief, but as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So also today, I want to say to you here this morning, this is that which was also spoken of by the prophet Joel. Not the same verses, though. Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it out loud. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. God says, he doesn't say it's Israel's land. He doesn't say it's the Jewish people's land. God says it's my land. It is not to be divided. Even if on a humanistic, rationalistic way of looking at it, well, let's just kind of, you know, it'll all be good and it'll all share and it'll all... So here's what the Bible basically says. There will come that thing. They will divide it. They will try to share it. And in the end, in the beginning, it will seem like it's working and peace and safety. And then it all goes up. And in fact, and I don't, you know, we don't have time to read it, but you read sometime this week, if you want, all of Joel chapter 3. Because there's a point and there's a day and there's an hour and a time when God says to all the nations of the world, once he goes, number one, the way you've treated my people. Number two, you, the world, have divided my land. Now here's what God says. Prepare for war. All the nations of the earth versus me. I'm coming to vindicate my promise, my covenant, my people, and my land. And so ultimately what the peace deal the Bible talks about ends in is war. A war like the world has never seen or ever known before. All right? So, um, can, can I hear Maranatha? Come, O Lord. Amen? All right. The reward of faithfulness, verses 44 through uh, 50. Let's look at this real quick. So, Jesus goes on. He says, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. In other words, the servant that he said, hey, take care of my stuff for me, and they do it, and they're faithful in it. Oh, they're going to be blessed. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, ah, my master is delaying his coming. He's not coming now. I've got time. I could live for myself. I could do things that I want to do. If he delays his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth." So everybody look up here for just a moment. Here's what I want to say to all of you here this morning. Thank you. God bless you. I'm glad you're in the house of the Lord on a Sunday, the beginning of February. You have all been given abilities. You have been given talents. You have been given everything you have that is good is from the Lord. 
Your heartbeat is from God. Your breath is from God. Every goodness that you have. And may I say, even living in Southern California, you're, you're pretty special. God loves you. He's blessed you. This is the edge of the promised land. It's good. But know this. There will come a day when we will all stand before the Lord. We will literally look at him and stand before him. And we will be held accountable for what we did with all that he did for us and blessed us. With. And if we're faithful with it, if we, if we honor him with it, we'll be rewarded. He'll say, wow, I gave you a few things and you were faithful. Now, because I am God, oh, wait till you see my glorious kingdom. I'm going to give you all that I have. I'm going to blow your mind with the things that I give to you. That's your future. Amen? But I also want to say this, and I speak this now to all the three million plus people in San Diego. They're not in church and they're not hearing my voice. Many of them are bitter against God. They don't believe in God. They don't like God. They don't like the church. They don't like Christians, whatever else. But they have also been given by their creator and by God gifts, talents, abilities, every dollar that they have, every heartbeat that they have, every breath that they take, everything they have, their wives, their children, their business, their, everything that they have has been given to them by God. Whether they like it or not, whether they believe in it or not, and one day they will stand before him and give an account and if they have taken advantage of what he has given to them and live for themselves and selfishly and build their own kingdom, then Jesus is the one that says they will go to a place that where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's an, a, a, a phrase that Jesus uses a lot in the New Testament, and what he's talking about is hell. The, hell is a real place. And so why is Jesus telling this to those that are out there because he is trying to prepare them and warn them and wake them up so that they don't end up there. For God is not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. And I am telling you what, God is shaking and I am hearing stories, people that you would think is the last person in the world that would ever get right with God or turn around or be unselfish or begin praising the Lord. Hello, Kanye West, what in the world? I mean, God is doing some amazing things with some crazy people. But he's not alone. So some of you have members in your family, they're so bitter, they're so hardened, they've been wounded, many of them have been hurt, many of them have been taken advantage, sometimes by their parents, maybe by a father who was the first image of God and ruined it for them, but God's gonna reach them, God loves them, God knows them, God's coming after them. And they're gonna, people you would never dream. It's like, you? You believe? He's like, well, yeah, I'm saved. And there are many right now that are seeing and feeling the darkness that is creeping around the earth. By the way, um, the coronavirus, hello, another sign. Locusts in the world, plagues. People, we're living in Bible times. So let me just say this be faithful. Don't mess around. There's no time to be compromised, living for the flesh, playing and toying with the things of the world, the flesh, or of the enemy. So I want to close with this. I want to talk to you directly about the spirit of Antichrist because, by the way, according to the Bible, it's not new. It's been here. The spirit of the Antichrist has been here for 2,000 years, but it picks up speed in the last days and gets personified in one man, one individual who is known as the 
Antichrist. What I want to say is the spirit of Antichrist is to believe that Jesus is divine, but not God. And let me tell you that there's coming this, this move around the world that religion is why we have all these wars. We need to get the religions together. And here's the way you get all the religions together. You say that they're all kind of equal. They all believe in the fatherhood of God, and they all believe in the brotherhood of man. So let, let them each one have their own way. And for the Christians, they have the Jesus divinity. Fine, he, he's miraculous, he did miracles, he did all these things, he's their guy, so he's good. But then there's other religions, they have their own way, another way. They have their leader, their guru, their guy, their divine guy. So they go that way. So we're all equal, all gods are equal, all religions are equal. And in order to do that, they have to tell the Christians who say, no, 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 Jesus is unique. He's the only way to go. And they go, no, 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 no. Look, we, we are against you. It, that attitude of the exclusion of only through Jesus is what's brought us all the problems in the world. So we need to put pressure on you. But if you say that he's one way and your way, but there are other ways, then we will welcome you and then we will celebrate you and we can all be together. And that's what we have to wa watch out for. First John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Let's read it. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. I want to say to you as clearly and bluntly and directly this morning as I possibly can, Jesus is unique. Jesus is God. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I and my Father are one. Jesus forgave sins. And those 2,000 years ago said, hey, 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 wait a minute. Those sins were committed against God. Only God can forgive those sins. And Jesus is like, yeah, <laughs> paraphrasing. <laughs> yeah, I forgive you. Which is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven, which you can't see that, or I command you that have been lame for 40 years, stand up right now, pick up your bed and walk. So Jesus did the healing to prove that, and I can also forgive sins. He committed them against God, and I forgave him, or I forgave her. He not only forgives sins, Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped. You can only worship God. Thomas, after the resurrection, dropped to his knees because he didn't believe. He goes, oh, don't tell me this about he's alive. I was there at the cross. Till I put my finger in his hand and my hand in his side, I will not believe. They're in a house, locked, afraid. They're coming after us. Look what they did to Jesus. And then Jesus appears. He goes immediately, Thomas, put your finger in my hand, buddy. Put your hand in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas dropped to his knees and said, because he's worshiping, oh, my Lord and my God. So I'm telling you, this is our message. Nobody else, no other way, Jesus. And he's coming to vindicate all of us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.